This is Jeffrey Sachs with a new installment of the Tradition Podcast. Our summer 2023 issue, recently made fully open access, contained a fascinating offering penned by Michael Schmidman, my distinguished predecessor here in the Tradition Editor's Corner Office. The essay, titled Isidore Tversky's Unique Contribution to the Guide of the Perplexed, is a presentation and analysis of five integral and interlocking components of Rabbi Professor Isidore Yitzchak Tversky's understanding of Maimonides' formulation of the relationship between the philosophic tradition and the oral law, particularly as expressed in his More Nevuchim. Schmidman suggests that all of Maimonides' works, as viewed by Tversky, promote the integration, the blending, the fusion of law and philosophy. We should not bifurcate the most central Jewish figure of the medieval era into Rambam the Halachist and Maimonides the Philosopher, but rather view his work as one united entity, writes Schmidman. Because Tversky's major scholarly focus was on the Mishnah Torah, his unique contribution to the study of the Guide of the Perplexed is, Schmidman suggests, sadly underappreciated, and that contribution is the focus of this essay. Michael A. Schmidman is Dean and Professor of Jewish History at Turo University Graduate School of Jewish Studies. This most recent essay originated as a lecture at a conference commemorating the 25th yard site of Rabbi Professor Tversky, convened by the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies at Yeshiva University. We thought our readers would appreciate listening to Schmidman's talk alongside reading his essay, now available at traditiononline.org. The recordings of all the lectures at that day-long conference held in September 2022 can be found on Revel's YouTube channel, and we thank our friends at the Bernard Revel Graduate School for permission to share this segment with our listeners. The Mishnah Torah famously commences with the following words, Yesod ha-yesodot v'amudachachmot leida she'esha matsui rishon. The most fundamental of basic principles and the pillar of all wisdom is to know that there is a first being. And if I might paraphrase the Rambam, Yesod HaYesodot, the most fundamental principle of the teachings of Professor Yitzchak Trotsky's Zechot Tzadik Levracha concerning Maimonides, Leida is to know, Sheyesham Mishnah Achida, to know that the Rambam's teachings reflect an essentially unified whole, a single remarkably consistent oeuvre marked by both brilliant insights and striking tensions. All of Maimonides' works, as viewed by Professor Tversky, from the commentary in the Mishnah and the Sefer Mitzvot to the Mishnah Torah and the Guide of the Perplexed to major treatises and letters, all promote the integration, the blending, the fusion of law and philosophy, halachau philosophia. We should not bifurcate Maimonides into Rambam the Halachist and Maimonides the Philosopher. That would be what Professor Septimus referred to as Rambam 1 and Rambam 2, I, I believe. But rather view his work as one united entity, thereby opening our eyes to the integral, though often overlooked or ignored, nexus between law and philosophy in the Maimonidean corpus. 
Professor Tversky's classic studies of the novel dimensions of the Mishnah Torah, its codificatory form, scope, classification, language, literary style, and of course, its fusion of law and philosophy, are properly recognized and appreciated and indispensable for rigorous scholarly examination of the Rambam's magnum opus. His unique contribution to the study of the guide of the perplexed, the Moren Vuchim, is, I think, less appreciated, and it is that contribution that constitutes the focus of my remarks this afternoon. Building upon what he identified as the Maimonidean fusion of law and philosophy, Professor Tversky approached Maimonides' teachings in the guide by focusing sharply upon the question of the relationship between the philosophic tradition and the Torah Shabal Peh, the oral law. In so doing, he transformed the guide's position on this question into what I would describe as an edifice consisting of five levels. An edifice housing bold and novel halachic and theological positions, an edifice that was to weather many storms, yet continued to stand tall, providing a brilliantly clear window into the intellectual and spiritual mindset and concerns of the Rambam. In constructing this edifice, I rely upon Professor Tversky's oral teachings, written works, especially his monumental introduction to the Mishnah Torah, and my own experience, as mentioned, in writing a book with him on the Rambam for the Open University of Israel, Halachava Good Harambam. The first building block of this edifice would be part one, chapter 71 of the guide, in which Maimonides discusses the history of the philosophic tradition. The chapter commences with the following sentence, quote, know that the many sciences devoted to establishing the truth regarding these matters that have existed in our religious community have perished because of the length of the time that has passed, because of our being dominated by the pagan nations, and because it is not permitted to divulge these matters to all people. This sentence already advances us to the first level of the edifice, but it may appear unintelligible without some prefatory remarks. As a medieval Jewish philosopher, Maimonides not only posited that no contradiction exists between the truths of faith and the truths of reason, he also believed that one could apply the truths of reason to better understand faith. For example, utilizing principles of physics to prove the existence and incorporeality of God or principles of moral philosophy to understand rationales for the mitzvot. Maimonides masterfully engaged in the latter enterprise, both prior and subsequent to part one, chapter 71 of the guide, including several chapters in part one, describing the pedagogically proper order of study of the philosophic sciences <clears throat> that may be used to demonstrate fundamentals of faith. And so returning to the first line of chapter 71, when Maimonides states, know that the many sciences de devoted to establishing the truth regarding these matters by sciences, he means the disciplines and truths of the philosophic tradition. And by these matters, he means fundamental truths of the religious tradition. And Maimonides is engaging here in an explanation. Why have the truths of reason that could be so profitably utilized to demonstrate the truths of faith perished? Why has the philosophic tradition disappeared from the Jewish community over the centuries? And he proceeds to offer three reasons for that disappearance. But this explanation assumes a fundamental premise, namely that the truths of the philosophic tradition were there 
existed in the Jewish community before they disappeared. This constitutes what I would refer to as the first level of the Rambam's position as developed by Professor Tversky, i.e., that there was a philosophic tradition among Jews in antiquity, which for several reasons was lost by the 12th century. Is Maimonides' position that Jews in antiquity cultivated the sciences a chiddush, a novel idea? Actually, it is not. As Professor Harry Wolfson already noted, many medieval writers, Jewish and non-Jewish, in an inversion of the standard modern view of the history of philosophy, believed that philosophic knowledge was learned or borrowed or plagiarized by the Greeks from the Jews. And as late as the 18th century, Voltaire, in his infamous entry on Jews in his philosophical dictionary, finds it necessary to polemicize against such a belief. In his words, quote, anyone who claims that the Greeks took their knowledge from the Jews is like someone who claims that the Romans learned their crafts from the inhabitants of Lower Brittany, unquote. Maimonides himself never makes such a claim. He simply intimates that there existed in antiquity a Jewish philosophic tradition independent of the Greek tradition and certainly similar to it, since for Maimonides, Aristotle was ha-philosoph, behei ha so level one of the edifice is that Jews in antiquity cultivated the truths of the philosophic sciences. In the same chapter, part one of the guide, chapter 71, Maimonides now advances his position a stage further to level two of the edifice. As mentioned, he provides three causes for the disappearance of this tradition in the Jewish community. The length of time that has passed, domination of Jews by foreign nations, and third, the esoteric character of this philosophic tradition. He then elaborates upon the third cause by formulating a kalvachomer. Quote, you already know that even the legalistic science of law was not put down in writing in the olden times because of the precept, which is widely known in the nation. And now the Rambam quotes the Gemara and Gitin Bed. Words that I have communicated to you orally, you are not allowed to put down in writing. Continues the Rambam. Now, if there was insistence that the legalistic science of law should not in view of the harm that would be caused, be perpetuated in a written compilation accessible to all the people, all the more could none of the mysteries of the Torah, Sitre Torah, have been set down in writing and made accessible to all the people. What are the Sitre Torah referred to by the Rambam? Clearly, indubitably, they are the truths of the sciences that may be used that may be utilized to demonstrate religious principles, as is clear from this chapter, the context of this statement. And it is also clear from Maimonides' formulation of the Kalvachomer that there are two essential components to the Torah Shabal Peh, the legalistic science of the law and the philosophic and scientific truths, the Sitre Torah. If it were prudent not to commit the first legal component of the oral tradition, the exoteric component to writing, then how much more so should the more esoteric philosophic component of the same oral tradition not be committed to writing? According to Maimonides, therefore, and this is the second level of the edifice, the oral tradition in its broader, original, pristine form included philosophic truths as an essential component. Indeed, Maimonides, in the introduction to the guide, speaks of the science of the law, I mean the legalistic, study of the law and the science of law in its true sense, that is the truths 
of the philosophic tradition as together comprising the two elements of the oral Torah. As Professor Tversky further underscored the nexus between law and philosophy in Maimonides' works by perceptively noting how the Mishnah Torah both confirms the premise of what I referred to as level two, that is the premise that the Torah Shabalpeh's original broader scope included philosophic truth as a major component, and also takes that premise one stage further to level three of the edifice, specifically. If philosophic and scientific knowledge that could be profitably applied to the understanding of religious doctrine is a component of the oral tradition, then it is logical to conclude that the study and pursuit of this type of knowledge is in fact a part of the religious mitzvah of Talmud Torah. And indeed, that as read by Professor Tversky is precisely the position that the Rambam codifies in Hilchot Talmud Torah, Perak Aleph, Alechot Yud Aleph, and Yud Bet. There the Rambam states that, quote, the subject style pardes are included in Talmud. What is the definition of pardes? The term designated in the Mishnah in Tractate Chagiga to refer to some kind of esoteric studies. In Hilchot Yesodeya Torah, Perak Dalet, Halacha Yid Gimel, the last halacha of the chapter, Maimonides expressly defines pardes as the subjects discussed in the first four chapters of Hilchot Yisodei HaTorah. Those subjects in turn are referred to by the Rambam as Maaseh Merkava and Maaseh Bereshit toward the close of chapters two and four respectively of Yisodei HaTorah. What comprises the content of Maaseh Bereshit and Maaseh Merkava according to Maimonides? As is well known, and as is clear from a careful reading of the first four chapters of Yisodei Torah, or simply from a look at the Rambam's summary statement in the commentary on the Mishnah, Tractate Chagiga, Maaseh Bereshit denotes the principles of physics, and Maaseh Merkava signifies the principles of metaphysics, all of which may be applied to demonstrate principles of faith. And of course, if Pardes equals Maaseh Bereshit and Maaseh Merkava, and equal physics and metaphysics, then ergo, pardes equals the principles of physics and metaphysics, i.e., principles of the philosophic tradition. And since the Rambam has codified that philosophic study or pardes is part of Talmud, hence, philosophic study applied to Yisodei Hadat is a religious imperative, a kiyum, or fulfillment, of the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. This, the third level of the edifice, rep represents quite a bit of religious legitimacy to be granted to the sciences of the philosophic tradition. And as Professor Tversky pointed out, one should not be surprised to encounter some less than enthusiastic responses to the Rambam's position. Thus, for example, Rav Yosef Karo in his Shulchan Aruch reproduces most of this section of Talmud Torah verbatim with the conspicuous omission of the statement that Pardes is included in Talmud, an omission that speaks volumes. The upshot of all this thus far is that originally the Torah Shabal Peh included the truths of the philosophic tradition. At some point, those sciences fell by the wayside for the reasons mentioned by Maimonides, and Maimonides hopes to restore those truths whose study comprises an integral component of the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. But how can Maimonides legitimately aspire to the restoration of truths that have disappeared from the Jewish tradition over the centuries? 
The answer, suggests Professor Tversky, is that these truths represent the universalistic dimension of the tradition, amenable to logical demonstration and rational apprehension, and therefore subject to extraction and recovery from the scientific treatises of the Greek philosophic tradition. Maimonides significantly, significantly formulates this notion both in the Mishnah Torah toward the end of Hilchot uh, Kiddush HaChodesh and in the Moreh part two, chapter 11 toward the end, stating clearly that, dem that demonstrably true scientific principles are part of the pristine Masorah of the Torah Shebal Peh. In advancing to level four of the edifice of the Maimonidean position, as we continue to construct it from Professor Tversky's teachings, we advance, to, we advance to part three, chapter 51 of the guide, specifically to the celebrated palace metaphor, Mashal Haramon, in which Maimonides sets up the image of a king in his palace, the king representing God, with various groups of subjects endeavoring to enter the king's chamber, but only able to advance up to certain points along the way. Only, insists Maimonides, only the person who has progressed beyond the mastery of the law, a mastery that is indispensable and prior, but only the person who has advanced beyond that mastery to become a religious philosopher, only the person who now engages in metaphysical speculation and rational demonstration of religious principles, only that individual can enter the king's chamber and be with the king in his innermost habitation. Again, not everyone would agree with this position, with this hierarchy, with, with, with its insistence upon the primacy of, of rational investigation and demonstration of the principles of faith, with its, with its demand that philosophic inquiry and knowledge are essential to a spiritually vibrant, genuinely religious life and indispensable to the attainment of religious perfection. Nor would everyone agree with the implication that Talmud study and observance of mitzvot alone, though vital, are not sufficient to reach the highest levels of religious attainment. Thus, the 15th century commentator on the Mora Nebuchim, Rav Shemtov ben Yosef ibn Shemtov, that's the grandson of the Shemtov ben Shemtov uh, mentioned by Professor uh, Septimus, uh, notes in his parish on, on the guide, and he's a Maimonidean in his approach, but he notes that many contemporary rabbis go so far as to question the Rambam's authorship of this chapter of the guide and say that if he did write it, it should be hidden away or better yet, burned. Professor Tversky brilliantly demonstrated that Maimonides advances the very same position, the same hierarchy of attainment in, in which philosophical knowledge takes pride of place in the Mishnah Torah as well, in the previously cited chapter 4 of Hilchot Yisodei Torah. In that chapter, Halacha Yud Gimel, as perceptively underscored by Professor Tversky, Maimonides offers an unprecedented literal interpretation of the Talmud's description of Davar Gadol and Davar Katan, as respectively Masemer Kava and the deliberations of Abaye and Rava. In lieu of the standard explanation of this Talmudic statement in Tractate Sukkah, as referring to the fact that the future deliberations of Abaye and Rava were perfectly clear, and therefore a davar katan to Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai and the other Tanaim. Here, too, the critical reactions to Maimonides' position are forcefully formulated with Rav Yosef Karo in his Kesef Mishnah lamenting the Harambam Katav Masheratsa. 
The Kesef Mishnah also cites the Ritva, who reiterated the traditional interpretation of the Mamar and Sukkah, while asserting concerning those who interpret differently, Vohelokim Yechaper Ba'ad. I might add that Professor Tversky's exposition of the novelty in Maimonides' interpretation of this Talmudic passage is characteristic of his insightful uncovering of the novel dimensions, whether explicit or implicit, of so many Maimonidean interpretations of biblical and rabbinic passages. The fifth, final, and critical level of the edifice focuses primarily upon the concluding chapter of the guide, part three, chapter 54. Here, Maimonides classifies in ascending order four categories of perfections. Perfection of material possessions, physical perfection, moral perfection, and intellectual perfection, the latter contemplative level of knowledge constituting the highest and only true perfection. He then correlates them with the four areas in which human beings glory, as famously crafted by the prophet Yirmiyahu in Parakhtet, Psukim Kafbet and Kafgimel of his eponymous work, ostensibly concluding with the highest level of Haskel via Doa Oti, that he understands and knows me. At the close of the chapter, also the close of the entire guide, Maimonides then adds the observation that the verses from Yermiho do not actually conclude with the words Haskel via Dooti, but rather continue as follows Ki Ani Hashem Chesed Ki Hashem. The interpretation of the conclusion of chapter 54 has, of course, been the subject of much debate. Gutmann had identified a Kantian redirection here, with the Rambam concluding by underscoring the moral dimension to the knowledge that has been so intensely sought. Apparently, the cognitive achievement is not the ultimate goal. Rather, emulation of divine chesed mishpadus Kabaaretz is the eventual goal of knowledge. The goal of knowledge is self-transcending. As Wolfson formulated it, quote, logically, Maimonides could have repeated with Avram ibn Daud that the end of all philosophy is right conduct. Ki tachlita philosophia hama'aseh. Others, Professor Shlomo Pines, for example, rejected as he writes in his introduction to his translation of the guide, he rejected the notion that for Maimonides, quote, ordinary moral virtues and moral actions are of greater importance and value than the intellectual virtues and theoretical way of life, unquote. In a later essay, Professor Pines does not deny the moral implications of the end of chapter 54, but he tries to restrict them to the prophetic leader. This matter, I recall Professor Tversky once remarking, is Gufe Torah of the Rambam. If you could be sure of this, he said, then the rest of the Rambam falls into place. Often the issue is phrased as the contest between the philosophic contemplative life and the rabbinic active life. For Professor Tversky, it was evident that Maimonides, for all his insistence upon the essential, indispensable role of intellectual inquiry and knowledge in reaching the most elevated religious level, once that level is reached, the individual does not remain in contemplative isolation, but returns to society. The fusion of contemplation with action is the ultimate goal. However, <clears throat> however, for the Rambam, that meant a life not of ordinary actions, but of action rooted in and informed by intellectual apprehension. In discussions with Professor Tversky on this point, he liked the idea of concretizing Maimonides' position in the form of a circle. The individual begins to ascend via proper performance of God's will to moral perfection, the penultimate perfection described by Maimonides in chapter 54. 
Um, and from there to the ostensibly ultimate goal of intellectual perfection, Haskel Viadoti, which could also be visualized as the top of the circle. Upon attaining the peak of knowledge of religious metaphysics, the individual in pursuit of perfection now comes back around the circle, directing his efforts toward actions that serve to morally elevate the individual and society. The second time around the circle, however, the actions take on a strikingly new dimension. They now are rooted in and reflect intellectual apprehension. The circle is complete. Acts directed toward moral perfection of the individual and society lead to intellectual perfection. That intellectual attainment in turn facilitates action on an elevated spiritual plane, and that's action that emulates God's traits of kindness, justice, and righteousness. Professor Tversky found support for this interpretation of Maimonides' conception of the ultimate purpose of human striving in other Maimonidean statements. For example, in the guide, part one, chapter 15, Maimonides analyzes the biblical description of Jacob's dream in Bereshit Kavchet, in which Jacob saw a ladder set on the ground, Sulam with its top reaching the heavens, and behold, angels of God were ascending and descending it, Olivier Dimbo, and behold, God was standing on it, In Maimonides' view, the order of ascent and descent, olim vigyardim, is both precise and significant. The individual and successful pursuit of the highest spiritual level, the prophet or angel, first must ascend to the level of intellectual perfection. Afterward, and anchored in that wisdom, the prophet descends in order to guide and instruct others on earth, in society, toward an elevated life of action, potentially leading to the ultimate form of religious perfection. Professor Pines viewed this platonic return as the path exclusively for the prophetic leader. Professor Tversky would ask, why the, why the distinction? The goal of human perfection, the bar set by Maimonides at the end of the guide is for everyone, at least in theory. Professor Tversky insisted that although Maimonides realized all too well that the Hamon, the masses, might be frustratingly resistant to pursuing the noblest ends, there is no caste system here. The Rambam insists that everyone, men and women, as evident from Hilchot Shuvah Perak Yud, progress in his characteristic phrase, in the direction of intellectually rooted love of God and spiritual shleimut. There certainly is elitism in the Rambam's writings, but that is de facto. In theory, the Maimonidean goal is open-ended and egalitarian. There will be tension in practice, since you can never achieve egalitarianism in terms of understanding. But the objective, as Professor Trotsky put it, is for the teacher to elevate the student to the same level and to follow in the footsteps of the Rambam's own description of Avram Avinu as one shehisig derecha emet, and would teach in each individual ad sheachsirehu lederecha emet, the same level. As an aside, Professor Trotsky was gratified to see Professor Pines veer more toward his understanding of chapter four, 54 in a later article published in 1979 in Studies in Medieval Jewish History and Literature, Volume 1. This, I think, completes my reconstruction of Professor Tversky's construction of the Maimonidean edifice in the guide, housing a unique and characteristic fusion of halakha and philosophy, action, and, contempla and contemplation. And like most uh, construction projects, this one is beginning to go a little bit over time. But if I might conclude with just a few brief allusions to related themes, as my dear friend, Professor Carmi Horowitz, pointed out in a conversation, the Mora is mentioned frequently 
hundreds of times throughout Professor Tversky's major work on the Mishnah Torah, by my quick count, close to 400 times, thus demonstrating Professor Tversky's intimate familiarity with the guide, a familiarity well known to his students at Harvard, and also further concretizing Professor Tversky's view of the integral nexus between the two works and between law and philosophy in the Rambam's writings. In particular, he turns to the guide in an extended discussion of Maimonides' views on Tameh and Mitzvot, reasons for the commandments, in chapter 6 of his introduction to the Mishnah Torah, insightfully and dexterously demonstrating the essential harmony between Maimonides' approach to Tameh and Mitzvot in part 3 of the guide, and in Hilchot Me'ilah, Hilchot Temurah, and numerous other sections of the Mishnah Torah. I would note that when apparent contradictions between the two works arise on this subject, Professor Trotsky's inclination in most cases was to stress differences of context and emphasis, and thereby eliminate or deflect the apparent contradiction. Thus, for a quick example, the off-sided, seemingly blatant contradiction between Maimonides' reason for sacrifices in the guide, part 3, chapter 32, interpreting Carbonota as relative to the historical circumstances of the time and ostensibly leading to the conclusion that sacrifices would not be reinstituted in the Messianic age. And on the other hand, Maimonides' glorification of the importance of Carbonota in the Mishnah Torah, for example, in Hilchot Me'ilah, and his explicit statement affirming reinstitution of sacrifices in the days of the Messiah in Hilchot Melachim, is addressed by Professor Tversky through a careful reading of the order and content of the relevant chapters of the guide. That reading leads to a distinction of context and emphasis. In the Mora, Maimonides is grappling with the narrowly delimited intellectual slash theological challenge of demonstrating the purposiveness of all God's commandments even in universal categories, categories understandable even to non-Jews. In the Mishnah Torah, by contrast, Maimonides underscores the particularistic dimension of sacrifices, that vital ethical and spiritual significance of the experience of the Avodah in the religious consciousness of the people of Israel. While different contexts and concerns are evident here, there is no real contradiction. But what of deliberate contradictions within the guide itself? Maimonides himself expressly states in the introduction to the work that, contradic that contradictory statements will appear for the two reasons that he specifies, and in accordance with the inevitable difficulties complicating the attempt to formulate in writing interpretations of doctrines involving Masebration and Masemer Kava that Chazal prohibited to teach publicly. I recall Professor Tversky pointing to the aforementioned Part 3, Chapter 51 of the Guide as a clear example of deliberate contradiction, with the chapter commencing with the seemingly superfluous declaration that there is nothing new in this chapter followed much later on in the lengthy chapter with the exclamation that, quote, a most extraordinary speculation has occurred to me, a red flag, said Professor Tversky, alerting the astute reader to carefully read and compare Maimonides' statements concerning divine providence in this chapter and earlier in part three. As Professor Tversky writes in a footnote in the introduction to the Mishnah Torah, quote, in studying the Maimonidean corpus, there is no need, as we have noted, to attenuate real contradictions or ambiguities, but neither is there any need to seek skeletons in the closet, unquote. In contrast to the Straussian view of the guide as a quintessentially esoteric work, 
Professor Tversky preferred the formulation of Gutmann in an article in Kiryat Sefer Shanayid Dalid, which notes that although there are places in the guide that invite both Nigla and Nistar interpretations, quote, we do not have the authority to impose upon the Rambam's words esoteric interpretations based upon unfounded assumptions. Hanachot klaliot haperchot ba'avir. In Professor Tversky's view then, finally, the Mora was not to be read as a predominantly esoteric work. Rather, he focused on the exoteric message, a message so central to Professor Trotsky's reading of the Moren Nebuchim and of the entire Maimonidean corpus, namely the integral relationship between law and philosophy, a relationship not devoid of tension, but one that is clear, consistent, complementary, and for the most part, without contradiction. Thank you. <laughs>